Welcome to the December 2020 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. Have you ever wanted to write your family's story but gotten stuck when you run up against a skeleton in the closet? Author Annette Gendler is here to help us navigate our way around those sticky situations. And then Diane Southard's going to be here. She's going to help us deal with another sticky situation. How to encourage a relative who's a bit reluctant to take a DNA test to take one. And since so many American family trees eventually make their way through the state of Pennsylvania, in this month's best website segment, we're going to explore the offerings of the State Library of Pennsylvania. And then we're going to wrap things up over at the offices of Family Tree Magazine, where the Family Tree Magazine new media editor, Rachel Fountain, is going to tell us about the revival of the free Genealogy Insider newsletter and how you can get your hands on it. But first, let's hear about your genealogical journeys. And we're going to do that in Tree Talk. In this month's Tree Talk segment, we hear from listener May Smith, who writes Back in the 1980s, at the start of the Family Search Program, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints asked all members to submit a four-generation ancestor chart. I've been a member since childhood, but my husband was a convert, so none of his family were in church records. I wrote a letter to both of his grandparents asking them to provide me with the names, birth dates, birthplaces, marriage dates, etc. for the four generations. One grandmother, Irma Baust, was the daughter of a man named Philip Jager, my husband's great-grandfather. My husband, what a man. My father, what a man, she exclaimed in her thick New York accent once during a visit. Every two years, a baby. She went on to share how her mother had died when she was young, and her father had taken on the responsibility for raising her and her siblings. I recorded this and all other relevant information I'd received on the four-generation chart, sent it off to the church, and completely forgot about it for over a decade. Then one day in 1999, I got a call on my cell phone. Is this Midas Smith? A strongly accented female voice asked. Thinking this was very strange, I suspiciously answered, This is Maytha Smith? This is Sonia, the woman replied. I'm calling from Germany. You are related to Philip Jager? I struggled for a minute with disbelief. Long-distance cell phone calls were expensive at that time. Who'd be calling me from Germany? The name Philip Jager sounded familiar, but it took a few minutes to remember where I'd heard it before. I think my husband is related to Philip Jager, I answered. Sonia told me that she'd tracked down my phone number with help from the church. What she told me next blew my mind. I am the great-great-granddaughter of Christian Jaeger, Philip's brother. I have the ancestry back to the 15th century. I have a website. If you will give me your email, I will send you a link. I was dumbfounded and amazed. Sonia did have a website with thousands of names. She and her mother had spent countless hours sifting through old records in church basements. Sonia had taken their research and built a website where she carefully recorded their sources. 
the information on the site is complete, correct, and presented in an organized way. It's fantastic. We have used the website to find my husband's ancestry and are so thankful that connection was made. That one phone call provided access to information on my husband's family line in Germany and blossomed into a friendship and family visits to boot. Thank you so much for sharing, May. Do you have a story of family history discovery? Why not share it with the rest of us? Send us your stories and you might just hear it here on the Family Tree Magazine podcast. Email your story to familytree at yankeepub.com. Familytree at yankeepub.com. Families and family histories, they can get a bit messy. And when you're trying to write your family's story, you're eventually faced with how to deal with the blemishes that you come across and whether or not you should or you shouldn't include them. Well, author Annette Gendler is the author of the book, How to Write Compelling Stories from Family History. And she's tackled these questions in her article, which appears in the September-October 2020 issue of Family Tree Magazine. It's entitled, Hard to Tell. It's all about how to handle the blemishes when we're writing our family stories. And I'm so happy to say that she is here with me today to talk about it. Welcome to the podcast, Annette. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Well, Annette, let's just start right out of the gate, um, kind of defining what are these blemishes that we're talking about? Well, they're those things that you run across when you research family history that makes you that make you cringe, that make you a little ashamed for whoever you're researching. So it's it's not necessarily something momentous, uh, you know, like a murder or something like that. It's just something that's slightly uncomfortable that you'd rather not share. Exactly, and it, and it, I suppose it could be as simple as just um, kind of annoying or bad habits or traits or. Um, yes. things about a person and but it's kind of them and we're also kind of having to interpret that so I know that you uh, you wrote your book and you work with students quite a bit on them writing their stories and I'd love to have you talk a little bit about where do you start with them how do you coach them on this decision-making process as to whether to include something or not yeah so what really makes or breaks it is if what you found, so let's say it, it is a blemish, whether that really had an impact on the future generations, you know, is it something that matters to the story that you're trying to tell? So as an example, you know, if your great uncle was a really stingy guy who never bought flowers for his wife because that was a waste of money, you know, that's not the greatest character trait, but... On the other hand, you know, he left you a nice nest egg, and that probably wouldn't be there that you inherited as the niece or nephew if he hadn't been that stingy. So then it's a his stinginess and his sort of just, you know, not really being that nice to his wife does have, and in this case, a positive impact on the rest of the family. So I think that's the first thing to look at is if you if you come across something slightly uncomfortable, is it pertinent to the story? Is it characteristic of that character? And does it serve 
the next generation in understanding themselves better or does it have an impact on who they are and what resources they have in their lives? Well, I know that you say in the article, and I do wholeheartedly agree with this, uh, you said, first and foremost, good genealogical research does not necessarily make good stories. And I think that kind of brings us to something you do talk about in the article, which is narrative storytelling, which is quite a bit different than this genealogy trail that we've been creating in our documentation. Um, Tell us a little bit about what narrative storytelling is. Yeah, so it comes to figuring out what makes a good story. So not, you know, in in research, you, you focus on every detail and disclosing everything and putting all the pieces of the puzzle together. But that does not make for a good story, which is why a lot of autobiographies Side note are boring because you're talking about everything and not everything in our lives is that interesting or of that much interest to the next generation. So when I um, start working with someone, we try to zero in on the stories that really made a difference. And so the way to sort of define what is a story is that there's, there's usually an incident. There's a reason why you're telling that story. So Um, You know, why something that happened in the past had an impact on you, influenced you, gave you or gave the the person you're writing about an insight that really helped them manage their lives or change their lives. And so that's kind of what you need to focus on. And then zero in on the things that make a story. You know, a story always takes place in a particular time, in a particular place. Um, There are a certain number of characters, but it's a finite number of characters. It's only the people that are pertinent to the story. It's not, you know, the, all the other relatives that might have been present, but really didn't, weren't part of the action. And then the main thing, obviously, is the action in the terms of the characters need to do something. It might, it could be that they're just talking to each other, but there's some action and some change that happens. And that can be something very mundane, like you know, dad says goodbye to a Cadillac that he, you know, loved for many, many years, but it's symptomatic of what kind of person he was, you know, that he really loved cars and gave a lot of attention um, to taking care of them. So, so those are the components that make a good story and that those also help you sort of curtail the story into a compact little hole that then becomes compelling and interesting. So that helps you get rid of all the extraneous details. You might want to share because you know them, but not everything you are aware of actually needs to be in that particular story. That makes a lot of sense. Not everything we know needs to be in every story. And that could help us as well with some of these blemishes. When I think about we discover, oh, they lied on a particular document or whatever. Well, it's fascinating maybe to us in the moment of finding it as a genealogist, but it really, what you're saying is it doesn't really add to the story, whatever the, the, the overarching theme is that you're trying to convey. So I guess, yeah, that, that does help us uh, eliminate some of those things. When we do find something and maybe some of the people involved in the story or the the blemish as well, are still alive, or just descendants of that person, of course, are alive. How do you kind of 
coach your, your readers to deal with those kinds of situations and whether or not that blemish is theirs to tell? Right. So I think you need to ask yourself first, why are you telling this? You know, sometimes it's just the, the joy in discovery that makes you want to share that. You have to take a step back and ask yourself, you know, why am I sharing this? Is, is this really something that other people need to know that had a, has an impact on them that really explains certain parts of the past? And if it does, I think then you need to go about it in a careful way and just figure out how to tell it in the most authentic way, not, not in the most sensational way, but, you know, just trying to really be true to the characters. And you will find that in most cases, A, living people like being written about. We all, you know, open a newsletter to see whether, you know, our kids actually in the school newsletter, let's put it that way. So most people like to be part of, of a story. And if you're writing something, you know, they, they, they like to be in there. So that's something to keep in mind. So for the most part, you're not gonna uh, encounter that much resistance. And if it's something that really, uh, bother someone or really jeopardizes your relationship with someone, I would backpedal on that. I, you know, I, I always feel that human relationships are more important than written words. And if it helps you maintain a reasonably nice relationship with someone by not disclosing a secret, I would give preference to the relationship. That's, that's my my way of looking at it. If, however, you know, you're writing about uh, people of the past, people have, who have already died, then, you know, you, you can't hurt them and they're not going to be able to sue you, not that anybody would anyway. And I think then it's, it's again, the same filter you should look, you know, are their descendants going to be upset about it? Most of the time they're not. Most of the time they'll be happy that someone is tending to the family history and someone is actually going to the trouble of putting something down on paper. And quite often they know about it. And if they don't know about this particular thing that you discovered, I would discuss it with them first um, if it is a relationship that's important to you. If it's not, you know, then go ahead and, and write about it. So I think you really have to look at and take into consideration what kind of relationships do you have with the people you're writing about and you know what what is worth safeguarding right you know we find things we might consider them a blemish but somebody else doesn't i mean i think it sounds like a lot of it is our own perspective it's our own experience and how we're interpreting what we're finding um, of course. Do you talk about that in terms of um, maybe there's something we should be adding uh, either as a preface or at the end of our story to kind of help people understand this is our perspective on things? Yeah, and it's also a matter of context, right? So especially when you're writing about things that happened in the past, social mores were a lot different. So something right. that we would consider unacceptable in 2020, you know, 1920 might have been just the way people were. And then people will either know that or it's up to you, the writer who's writing down this story to provide the historical context. Um, and of course, when you're writing a memoir, I think it should be self-understood that that is your perspective. And But you can certainly manage that in writing in first person, writing from I think this, I think that, I found this, I found that. So then that it's sort of crystal clear that 
you're the one who's telling the story and it's your view of the story. And if someone else has a different view or different perspective, then they can write their version. Right. Such an important thing to remember along the way. And, you know, it, it's interesting. We talked, I said at the beginning, you know, families and family history is messy. And in a sense, writing it can be a little bit messy, but you certainly help bring some um, clarity to it in your book, which of course is called How to Write Compelling Stories from Family History. I love the compelling part. I think that's <laughs> really important. And of course, the article uh, which is in the September-October 2020 issue of Family Tree Magazine, is called Hard to Tell. And um, I think that you'll get a lot out of what Annette has to share in the article, kind of help guide you along the way so you don't shy away from um, telling your family's stories, but you can do it in, in a way that's uh, responsible and compelling. Annette, thank you so much for um, your insight and for sharing these strategies with us in the magazine. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I hope it's helpful to everybody. And feel free to all, you know, contact me. You can find me on the web quite easily if you run into some snag. I love to, I love to uh, share whatever advice I can. Great. Tell us your website. Uh, it's just my name, AnnetteGendler.com, and you'll see I have an advice column on there. You just click on that and you can send me an email with whatever quandary you have. Excellent. And it's Gendler, G-E-N-D-L-E-R. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Annette. Thank you. So you're hot on the trail of a DNA research project. And there's one person who's standing between you and the answers that you're looking for. But what if you suspect that person is going to be a little hesitant about testing? Well, in today's DNA Deconstructed segment, your DNA guide, Diane Southern, is here to talk about how to convince a relative to test. Welcome back to the show, Diane. Thanks, Lisa. It's always a pleasure to be here. And this is a great topic that I get asked about a lot I was going to say, I bet working with your clients, this happens where you say, oh, this is the person you need. And they look at you and like, oh, I don't think they're going to want to do this. What do you say to people? How do you recommend that they approach the situation? Well, I think the number one thing to remember is that your DNA cousin or your cousin, I guess, that you're hoping to take a DNA test, they don't catch this vision of what DNA testing can really unlock and the answers that it can provide. So your first job is not to convince, but to inspire. So you really need to help them see that they have this record that no one else has, this view into the past that nobody else can show you, and really help them to see that the DNA is unique to each person and that their particular record is really the key to answering whatever question it is that you have. I love that. And it's, it's really something that we do, you know, when we're just trying to talk about family history and get people to interview with us or to share documents and things to inspire them. What a novel idea. Yeah, you know, it's, it's all about 
nobody thinks their story is worth telling. And right. it's so sad because everybody has a story worth telling. But I think a DNA story is especially easy to convince people because you can say, hey, it's biology. No one on earth who has ever lived or who will ever live has your particular DNA signature. That means you have a story in your DNA that needs to be told. I love that. Now, they might be thinking, okay, well, that sounds great. And I guess, I guess you need this, but I don't know how to deal with this. Um, what kind of a role can we take to help make the process really simple where maybe they don't even have to mess with it if they don't want to get into the website and look at the results and do all that stuff? Absolutely. So you can take as hands-on of a role as you need to, to ensure that the test is done and that your relative doesn't have to do anything they don't feel comfortable doing. There's so many people who don't even touch their computers or don't even own a computer. So you can do everything up to actually physically taking the test. So for example, you can order the test online, pay for it yourself. You can have it shipped to your house. You can hand take this DNA test to your relative if if that's a possibility and do everything without them even having to check their mailbox. Now, if they live farther away, obviously they will have to do something um, to, to do the test themselves. But even then you can have the test delivered to your own house. You can go through the entire registration process online because every, every DNA kit has to be registered online. So the testing company knows who's taking the test. And there are lots of boxes to check and there's lots of things that you have to consider. So you know, a relative might not be interested in doing that part for themselves. So you can do all of that and then ship the actual physical sample to them, telling them all you have to do now is spit in this tube or swab your cheek and put it back in the mail. Um, the really important part there, though, is each company is going to ask you for your consent. And it's important that we don't skip over that. So when you're, if you're away from your relative, but you're filling out the information for them, get them on the phone, help them understand what the consent says and make sure that they understand what you've agreed to if you're the one filling out the paperwork. I imagine that sometimes the, the stumbling block is that people are concerned about privacy and giving their consent and, and that type of thing, and losing control of, the, of their data. What kinds of things would you say to somebody when they express those concerns? They want to help you, but they just want to understand a little better. Right. Number one, don't dismiss out of hand their concerns. Yeah. Don't tell them they don't need to worry about it. Don't tell them it's safe. Don't, you know, don't, those are, those are things that, that you might believe, which is fine, but that doesn't help. You need to validate their concern and say, I hear you. I hear there's a lot of privacy concerns surrounding this. I'm glad you thought of this. I'm glad you're asking these questions. Let me point you to some resources or let me try to answer the questions myself and do what you can. And there's a, all of our testing companies are trying to overcome the same obstacle that you are. Yeah. They all have resources about these things that you can point people to, to read. Um, but just please take their concerns seriously make them feel heard. And I think that goes farther than actually even solving their concerns. Just the fact that you listened and that you were aware and that you were concerned for their concerns is going to help so much. Oh, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's funny. It's like, if you don't get that validation up front, then I think a little bit of the skepticism hangs on, right? Yes, but when it just you get, niggles, right? Yeah. In the back of their mind, it niggles. Mm -hmm. So finally, they've taken the test. You've done most of the legwork for them and you've gone about finding your answers. 
do you have recommendations for what an easy, simple, undaunting way to maybe share back, touch base one more time and say, here's a little something to kind of help you see what we did here. Yeah, no, this is so important. And even one one thing you can do prior to kind of set yourself up for this last step is to ask your relative what's their interest level in this research project. It's especially important to help them understand that a DNA test can reveal relationships that they didn't expect. So that if by chance you do come across some relationships that you didn't know about, that you'll know how to proceed because you've already asked your relative what you want, what they would want you to do. So you say, cousin, this, this DNA test, it's going to find us lots of relatives that maybe we don't know. Would you like to know if I find out something unexpected? And then they can say, yeah, for sure, I'm, I'm interested, or nope, don't tell me anything. I don't want to know. I'm happy believing exactly what I believe. And then you'll know what to do if that unexpected situation comes up. But assuming that there's nothing like earth shattering that you find out, at least not from your relative's point of view, I think it is important to share back the things that you learned. At least touch base with them and say, you know what? It was so helpful. I was able to find a cousin that's put me on the on the trail of our ancestor. And I'm, I'm excited about where we're headed. Even something simple like that is going to make a difference. And even though our focus is on the matches, it could be fun just to give them one simple handout that shows their ethnicity breakdown, you know, and shows the map. Uh, Because I know some of these services have a lot of, of neat things that you can share that way. So they really do. And, you know, a couple of our companies, um, I think Living DNA and 23andMe both offer like a book that you can, like an actual printed, really nice quality kind of coffee table book that, you know, centers a lot on ethnicity and tells them a lot about their heritage and ancestry. And that would make a beautiful gift. Didn't my heritage DNA do a little video thing? Yes, they have a beautiful video um, that you can see on their website. And that's a wonderful thing to sit down with your, with your cousin or whoever you had tested and just show them that quick video. It doesn't take very long and it's really fun. Love it. Great advice. Knew you were the person to ask. Thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Thanks for having me. In this month's Best Websites for Genealogy segment, we're heading to Pennsylvania and the website of the State Library of Pennsylvania. And here to tell us more about what they have to offer you as the genealogist is the Government Documents Librarian, Kathy Hale, and Genealogy Librarian, Amy Watovich. Hi, Kathy and Amy. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. I'm excited to talk to you because, you know, so many family trees connect with Pennsylvania at some point. And so you guys have a tremendous collection there that you can um, make available to people to help them when they're ready to dig into the Pennsylvania records. So Kathy, I'd love to have you just kind of give us a, a brief overview of overall, what does the State Library of Pennsylvania have in its collections? Well, I have a theory about the people doing their genealogy that everyone has come through Pennsylvania at least once. There's footprints from places in New England over to Ohio, going to the south. So many people put their footprints at the state of Pennsylvania, at the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. The State Library has been in existence since 1745, and we hardly throw anything away. 
So we are like a little library of Congress for the state of Pennsylvania. But Amy is our new genealogy librarian. So I'm going to let her tell a little bit more about what we have available electronically. Excellent. Uh, like Kathy said, uh, we started in 1745 and we've been collecting ever since. So physically we have over 30,000 volumes, 100,000 reels of microfilm and a million pieces of microfiche. But we also have things that we've digitized and made available that like county and family histories, local histories, uh, small church histories from rural areas of Pennsylvania. Uh, we have city directories and passenger lists, regimental histories. Uh, our regimental histories cover from the Revolution to the Spanish-American War. And we have pension lists available. And we also have the Pennsylvania Published Archives that have, that have been digitized. They're um, a collection of military government records, and like marriage records and immigration records from early Pennsylvania times, like the colonial times. Uh, we're also a federal depository library, which Kathy can tell you more about what we have in those collections. Okay, the state library has been a federal depository. That means the government printing office deposits with libraries throughout the country different materials that the government publication office gets from agencies, the legislature, and judiciary. We have been one since 1858. We're one of the oldest ones in the country so that we have a collection that spans from that time period to the present. So I usually tell people that we are a blending of the old and the new. So if you need U.S. Census records from 1790, that was the first census that was taken, to 1940 have been released. There's a law, a U.S. law, that says that the individual names cannot be released until 72 years after the census has been taken. So the State Library has on microfilm the 1790 to 1930. The 1940 census was released only electronically. This is the first census only to be put out there electronically by the National Archives. So you can go to the State Library's website which is you can just Google State Library of Pennsylvania and we're one of the first things that come up and go to our research guides to talk about those materials. We also have Pennsylvania documents. So we've been collecting those ever since the State Library has been in existence. So one of the things that people might find when they come to the State Library, they may not be able to get everything right now, but eventually we will be able to get back into the building. So one of the things that I always thought was very interesting is that we have a report that was done for Pennsylvania of the 25th and 50th anniversaries of the battles of Gettysburg. So it had people who were at the Battle of Gettysburg and came back for the reunion. It also told you how much they ate and the sanitation and stuff like that. But it also gave a lot of names and some pictures of the materials. Also in our US government documents is something called the serial set. That is something that our reports to the legislature from different agencies or institutions. One of the things that genealogists can use is the Daughters of the American Revolution every year 
had to give a report to Congress of the names that were approved by the Daughters of the American Revolution. So right now, you can go to many libraries and access those. You can access those through the federal government. If you need help, you can email the state library. And I have to put a plug in for that email is ra-reflib at pa.gov. Okay, Amy, take it away from here. One of the things I wanted to mention about our website is many of the things that Kathy mentioned, we have our research guides in our public section of our website, and that it'll take you to links to the National Archives, the, all the government documents, reports, and things like that. That's kind of like a finding aid. Uh, you know, it's funny, yeah. I was just talking about this in um, a recent episode of Elevens with Lisa, and that was a new concept to some of the researchers. I'd love to have you expand a little bit about how you, as a repository, create these so that people really can navigate your collections. Well, we've separated them out by uh, research area of interest. So there's some for vital records. There's some for Pennsylvania railroads and mines. We have cemetery records on there. We have a link to something called the Zemer Collection, which is a collection of cemetery records that some, a man named Jeremiah Zemer collected in the early 1900s. He went around to all of the cemeteries and recorded all of the information. In Cumber <laughs> only in Cumberland County. Yeah, Cumberland County, Pennsylvania. Wow. Right. Now, are these by chance available online? Because I'm thinking about people are optimistic that they're going to eventually get back into the building itself. So are we. <laughs> yes, exactly. And you said you've been, gosh, working virtually since March. Are the finding aids or the research guides online so maybe they could do some prep work right now? They can use them for prep work. Like I, I said, they have links to places like the, the Civil War Soldiers and Sailors Database and the National Archives. So they could go and look and see where they can find the information that they're looking for. Excellent. Now, Amy, you mentioned, of course, there's the website, and I believe you guys have a dedicated genealogy page. Can you give us a few kind of hints and tips for the best way to, to navigate and maybe what you think we just shouldn't miss if we make one visit to the website? Well, you shouldn't miss the genealogy section. <laughs> it's a very large website because it includes all of the Commonwealth Office of Commonwealth Libraries. At the top of the page, there's three tabs, and you want to look at the tab that says For General Public. And that will, um, if you click on that, that will take you down to all of the genealogy resource guides. And we also have resource guides for other areas like law resources and government documents as well. But we have a separate section that you can click on that will take you to all our genealogy resource guides. I notice newspapers, and that always catches my eye. And I know it does the other genealogists. Right. Um, can you give us a little more background on your newspaper collection? Uh, well, in normal times, we have a newspaper from every Pennsylvania county. And there's 67 Pennsylvania counties on microfilm. Uh, right now, we do have a lot of newspapers that have been digitized at our PA Photos and Documents collection. That's at the Power Library website. Um, it's www.powerlibrary.org. There's a lot of older newspapers there that we've digitized. Uh, Kathy, did you want to add something? <laughs> if they go to the Power Library, um, they should be a Pennsylvanian in order to access these Pennsylvania documents and digital images. So they can go to that website that Amy talked about. On the right-hand side, they'll see PA Digital Docs and Photos. 
they can go there and they can search over, I think it's like 65 different institutions have been putting their documents and photos into this repository since 1986. So it's not just the State Library, but you might find things from Albright College, from uh, Franklin and Marshall College. Many college yearbooks are available there. So you could just search for college yearbook. And every time that phrase comes up, a result would come up that they could look through various things. There's also different subjects areas. And I believe genealogy is one of the subject areas on the PA photos and docs. Did you say that you have to be a resident of Pennsylvania? And if by chance you're not, then is there a way to get gain access? Well, there's two sections to the Power Library. The electronic databases, you definitely do have to be a Pennsylvania resident. Um, Kathy, did you want to speak about the uh, digital documents? The digital documents, you do not have to be a Pennsylvanian in order to access that material. But if you're going on to some of the other reference materials. You need to be a Pennsylvania resident with a library card in order to do that. But just the Pennsylvania digital documents, you do not need to be a Pennsylvanian to be able to access those things. Great. So if you're outside of uh, the state, then you might need to get in touch with a researcher that's local. Well, an amazing collection and resource. We have lots to look forward to when it opens back up and things we can do right now over at the website. Ladies, thank you so much for sharing the treasures there at the State Library of Pennsylvania. We appreciate it. Okay. Thank, think of Amy and I as your personal librarians. Oh, we love that. <laughs> <laughs> so make, make sure that you send questions to us because that's what we're here for. Thank you for that reminder. I have been trying to encourage people. You know, we, in the past, we've been shy and we just, you know, we get used to Don't things be being shy. online. But you guys are an amazing resource, and you know that collection better than anybody. So, perfect. We're here to Thank help you. everyone. So that's right. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Before we wrap this episode, let's hop on over to the editor's desk and talk to Rachel Fountain. She's the new media editor at Family Tree Magazine. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you again. I, I assume you're uh, working from home these days, but staying pretty busy, I see, over at the website. Absolutely. So Definitely. I know in the past, you guys have had the Genealogy Insider newsletter. There was a blog at one point. Um, what are you doing in 2020? And can they get their hands on the newsletter today? Sure. Uh, yeah. So the Genealogy Insider used to be the name of a blog and an accompanying newsletter on our website um, that was discontinued for a while. But in 2020, we decided to bring it back um, just as a newsletter. So the current Genealogy Insider is a weekly newsletter that's sent on Thursdays. And we like it. It's been fun to put together. It's a newsletter that features a message from someone new each week. So sometimes it's one of our editors. Um, sometimes it's one of our course instructors from Family Tree University um, or just someone in the field. And Lisa, I remember, I think you wrote one for us on how to use Google for genealogy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So this is a, an email newsletter. It's free. They can sign up for it over at the website. How often is it coming out now? Yep. So it's sent once a week on Thursday mornings. Well, morning, 
our time. <laughs> <laughs> and you guys are out on the, on the East Coast, right? On, in Ohio? We are, yeah. So we're in Cincinnati, which is kind of strange because um, even though we're technically in the Midwest, we're on an Eastern time zone. But for all intents and purposes, the insider is sent on Thursdays. Exactly. That's, that's the challenge of a podcaster for me is keeping track of time zones and, right? and catching up with people. But uh, it's always nice when you have a newsletter like this that you can look forward to. It's going to pop in your inbox. And uh, like you said, it features articles. I assume it talks about new courses and things that are coming up over at Family Tree University. Yeah. So the goal of the newsletter is to provide um, something really quick, something fun, easily digestible that our subscribers can just quickly read through each week. Um, and it does provide just a snapshot of what the other branches of our brand are doing. So the university and, uh, you know, the store and the podcast. So it's just a once a week, you know, dose of genealogy and kind of a look into what else is going on at Family Tree. Great. Sounds like a great way to stay in touch. And uh, for those of you listening, if you'd like to see this wonderful little uh, item pop up into your inbox each Thursday, then head over to familytreemagazine.com. Now, typically, I think when you visit the site, you get a little pop-up. They'll just invite you right then and there to join the newsletter. You can sign up at the website at familytreemagazine.com slash newsletters. You'll also find a link for the free newsletter on the homepage down in the footer. Well, it's always great catching up with you, Rachel, and we'll look forward to catching up with you through the newsletter as well. Thanks so much. Thanks, Lisa. I hope you enjoyed this December 2020 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Now, if you're listening to the show through a podcast app like Apple or Google Podcast, hey, would you do us a big favor and give us a five-star review? You know, your reviews help other people give the show a listen. We'd love to have folks join us here, and we really appreciate the important role that you play in that. So thank you so much. And as always, I will have links on the show notes webpage to everything that we discussed today. You can find the show notes at familytreemagazine.com slash podcasts. Again, I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and you can visit me at my website, genealogygems.com, where you'll find the Genealogy Gems podcast and my free weekly YouTube show, Elevenses with Lisa. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. <laughs>